Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Atmosphere Podcast. Today, we have the incomparable Bob Edelstein on the show. Bob Edelstein is an existential humanistic psychotherapist based in Portland, Oregon. In addition to being a therapist for over 40 years, Bob is the founder of Existential Humanistic Northwest, an organization dedicated to impacting the world by promoting values of authenticity, integrity, responsibility, interconnectedness, and awe. Bob is a former board member of both the Association for Humanistic Psychology and the Existential Humanistic Institute. In today's conversation, Bob explored his early years as a college student studying economics and his eventual switch to studying psychotherapy as a result of a life-changing reading of Carl Rogers. After studying the works of existential humanistic pioneers such as Rogers, Rollo May, and Abraham Maslow, Bob entered into a mentorship with Jim Bugenthal. Starting in 1991, Bob participated in Jim's yearly, week-long intensive training based on Bugenthal's landmark book, The Art of the Psychotherapist. Bob continues to run consultation groups and trainings, and I have been in one of his consultation groups for the last three years, as well as serving with him on the board of directors of Existential Humanistic Northwest. We had a great conversation, and I hope you all enjoy it. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with Bob Edelstein. All right, we're here with Bob Edelstein. What's happening, Bob? How are you? Pretty good, William. Uh, Thanks for inviting me to do this podcast. Absolutely. It's great to see you. How is your life going in the spirit of existential sort of uh, looking at life? How is your life going presently? Uh, it's going well. I, uh, you know, I was surprised. I'm getting a little bit itchy to get back into the world in, in, in you know, going to theater events or because I'm really conservative. So uh, um, I'm doing telehealth from home and uh, just kind of I'm with my wife and uh, my social engagements are engagements are fairly limited and that's Mm -hmm. through the pandemic so I'm looking forward to get more engaged in the world I'm I'm planning to go back to my office right now I'm pretty sure it will happen would be the uh, first Monday in February Um, but uh, I've also been pleased about how well I've done with the pandemic through through this uh, whole time because I'm on the extroverted side. So I thought I'd be going, uh, I'm not going crazy, but I thought it might be difficult. And I've actually enjoyed a lot of it. I'd rather see people in person in terms of, in terms of the existentialist perspective, you know, I want that live contact, but the Zoom meetings have gone much better than I thought they would. And when I'm not in the Zoom meetings, or in my case, simple practice meetings, that um, I've enjoyed my solitude. I've enjoyed being with my wife. So I'm pleased with how well it actually has gone for me. Really dialed in. And to some degree, you sound somewhat surprised like I have felt at the onset of this pandemic. I don't know if I ever told you, but I, I actually considered that I maybe would close up shop in my private practice when the pandemic hit because I thought oh my god just everything in video now I just I'm just getting started with this thing and this huge upheaval and 
it's it's been a lot better than I thought. But yeah. but yeah, there's that that itching to get back to social life. Right. Is 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 a thing for sure. Yeah. Well, I look at it that way similar. My experience of you is you're a little bit more on the extroverted than introverted side. You know, that's, that's an interesting observation. I, 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 so, I don't know. I'm, I guess, I guess I'm, well, I guess we're all both to some degree. Yeah, we are. Because in some, there's been, there's been instances where I've used the pandemic as a like, oh, well, I don't have to do much explaining to not go to this event because there's a pandemic and I don't really feel like going to it. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And I didn't mean to imply that because for myself too, it's almost, I think in order to be a psychotherapist, uh, you need it, you need to be introverted to some extent, you know, because you're receiving and taking in. So, you know, even with myself, I would say I'm in pretty, uh, you know, good balance of the two. And I think I'm a little bit more on the extroverted side. That's an interesting point though, as a therapist, that having some degree of introversion is obviously helpful because there isn't this innate need to maybe tell your story or make it about you. And it's a really, yeah, it's easier to do active listening when you're in that introverted sort of uh, predisposition. Yeah, it's easier. It's part of being receptive to the other person. Uh, I know you're interested in the frames, attitudes and skills of an existential humanistic psychotherapist uh, that I wrote is in a chapter in the handbook of humanistic psychology, second edition. And I think it was 2015. And um, that's, that's, you know, it's, so it's always both in terms of, if we're gonna look at it in terms of introversion and extroversion, because uh, two of my, I have six philosophical frames, six relationship attitudes and six therapeutic skills. And uh, I wrote this chapter because uh, this was, uh, I forget, I think it might've been back in 2008 or something like that. Um, but I was, uh, I was at a existential humanistic conference in San Francisco and we had breakout groups and it was very disappointing uh, to me. There were about 10 in, in each group uh, talking about one topic on existentialism in the perspective. And uh, the group I was with was um, how to kind of, in a sense, uh, market it, you know, uh, in getting the word out into the world, what are different ways what we can do that, or people interested in the existential perspective can do that. And there were about 10 of us and about five of the people were new people and about five of us were more experienced and in the new people, because this is with people, you know, throughout the country. And in the uh, new people, they all said in their communities, they, they uh, with their supervisors, they would say, the supervisor would tell them, it's okay, you're existential humanistic, but don't put it out in the world. Don't tell people that because that means you're just flying by the seat of your pants. It's not evidence-based, all those sort of things. And it, it really, it disturbed me. And uh, I don't look at this perspective of flying by the seat of, your, of, of one's pants. I look at it that it's not about techniques, but it is about <clears throat> different ways uh, that one holds uh, that helps them become more fully present 
because that's such a core of existential humanistic psychotherapy. And uh, so I decided to break it down. And that's where the 18 frames, total 18 frames, attitudes and skills came. And in the, so I start with saying before, I, uh, in the beginning of this, that, you know, that it's important in a sense to be introverted and extroverted or, or receptive and active because it's about making contact with the person. And, um, and so two of the uh, therapeutic skills is deep listening, which is that introversion receptive part where the client knows that I am really being attended to. This person is really, uh, is, is really receiving me as they just listen and I speak, or maybe I'll say a few words, you know. And so, so for people, just just to clarify for, for folks, um, you're discussing your chapter in the Handbook of Humanistic Psychology Theory, Research, and Practice. It's the second edition of what I would say is a classic book for anybody interested in, exist in an existential approach. And your contribution to this canon is this idea of six frames, six attitudes, and six therapeutic skills that kind of coincide with each other, but not in a linear way. They sort of all interact, but that there's these three sort of taxonomies that sort of work with each other. Is that, mm, yes. is that yeah. And, 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 and your chapter is an explanation of that and a clarification of the misconceptions of how we're seen as these sort of esoteric, death-obsessed, you know, we talk about Dostoevsky and, and death and, and, and it's, it's, it's really not like that. There is, at the, at, the, at the bottom of it, there's a, the anchor of it all, the position of it all, it seems to be one of presence, would you say? That presence is the yeah. mm -hmm. predominant feature. Yeah, uh, yes. And uh, I could talk about that if you want, but, and that uh, I would even say what I wrote, I could also look at as a typology of paradigm in terms of what are kind of concrete, more concrete uh, philosophical frames, relationship attitudes and therapeutic skills uh, that is important for an existential humanistic psychotherapist to, to develop. Um, and uh, so it's not just a fly by the seat of your pants. In other words, the intuition and presence is uh, is uh, more is strengthened by the frames, attitudes, and skills. Right, right. Who, what led you to what eventually became these eighteen sort of features that you postulate? How, how did you end up with this as an original sort of contribution to the canon? Well, like I was saying before, I was uh, concerned about that. How did I come up with it? Um, you know, I, I've, uh, I'm 72 and I've been <laughs> passionate about this perspective since I was uh, like, uh, since I was 21. And uh, I wasn't a therapist when I started in 21. It, it took a few years before I became one, but um, but which I can tell you that story. I read. Uh, in, That'd be great. I was an economics major at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, from uh, I went there from '67 to '71, 
and uh, and I thought this was a good thing to do um, because my parents thought economics was pragmatic, practical. You know, I could end up um, getting a job, and you'd you'd actually make money and make a living, right? Something that's a yeah. little safer. Yeah, yeah. sounds like yeah. my folks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and I really didn't like economics. I remember I liked my the freshman textbook that I read, and uh, and it was one course in economic development I really liked. But um, and I really didn't know what psychology was in those days. I thought it was some father figure or mother figure telling you what to do, which I didn't want any part of. And you had a very Freudian uh, yeah, view, exactly. I guess, intuitively. That, yeah, that was my conception. Yeah, and. Um, and I took my senior year, in the spring of my senior year, um, I took an elective course called uh, um, on education. And I read a book in that called Freedom to Learn by Carl Rogers, who, as you know, and, yeah. um, is, uh, is him and Abraham Maslow are the two uh, theoreticians. Maslow was a theoretician. Rogers was that, but he was also a psychotherapist. And uh, that really popularized and brought humanistic psychology into the United States. And, um, and so Carl Rogers, he, it, he blew my mind. I mean, at that point in time, it was the opposite of what I was living up until then, where it was, uh, I was other directed. Um, you know, what my parents thought was good or my friends thought were good or my, the media thought was good, whatever, you know, and, dealing with all that was bombarded at me, which is still true in our culture. Um, and what Carl Rogers was saying was just the opposite. He was saying, this was his uh, philosophy uh, um, applied to education. But he was saying in order to, in that, he was saying that each of us really know what's best for ourselves, which, uh, you know, was like, wow, you know. Um, and uh, the other part, in order to live a full, fulfilled life, you need to know who you are. And so that means discovering who you are internally. What's, you know, because uh, they inter intertwine, but to take a step back and not just be pulled by the outside world and all that's coming at you, but to look at what's going on internally, separate from what's coming at you and in response to what's coming at you. And so, uh, and you know, that, uh, that would be um, moving into your authentic core, being authentic. And- um, So all these insights came to you from reading Carl Rogers. It sounds like it was like a pretty big sort of eureka- Yeah. Pivoting moment in your life. It, it was that strong of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an impression to have read yeah. Rogers and have such an original yeah, and, and just reading, reading, uh, and literally just reading the book, and uh, then basically, uh, uh, and just to finish that out, what I was saying is, and then when you know who you are, the other part to live a fulfilled life is to bring it into the world, to manifest it, to actualize it, and so that's the full circle, you know, in authentic, I move into actualization, and then once something gets actualized, or it doesn't quite get actualized and I get more feedback from the world, I go back to then how do I respond to that? So it's an internal, uh, not only is it an internal process, it's an interpersonal process with the world. 
So um, any rate, so I, uh, that started me. My life's been a journey on that end. And so, so the frames, attitudes and skills came as I thought and reflected on it um, was uh, what I came up with. Although uh, from my life, a lot, uh, although again, uh, I, I'll use the word core again, a core part of it was from my major mentor. I look at Carl Rogers as my psychological grandfather. And in mm -hmm. fact, I have a personal yeah. letter from him, which is like a Mickey Mantle card if people know baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, in response to a letter I sent to him, but- um, He responded to you and you used to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, and then, uh, but my, so he's my psychological grandfather. My psychological father is Jim Bugenthal. That's right. And, uh, you know, I started working with him in 1991 and uh, I was like 40, uh, 41, 42, 41. Um, and- uh, So there was a 20, 20 year space there from when you read Rogers, your psychological grandfather, I'm, I'm wondering, before we get into Bugenthal, which I'm super interested to learn that whole story, right. what was it like for you, 21-year-old Bob, reads Carl Rogers, he's an economics major, but now has this sort of seismic shift in how he views himself in the world. What does that young Bob do with this? Um gets clear that economics he doesn't want anything to do with. Oh no, now you gotta, now you gotta tell mom and dad about it, huh? Well, mom and dad always, uh, you know, uh, were always concerned about my choices in this. You know, they came from the depression and right. insecurity was, was very strong. So my, my first job out of college actually was even though, <coughs> I uh, was ready to let go of economics. My first job was as an economist for the U.S. Commerce Department that I did for about Whoa. six months and then just left it and never looked back in terms of doing economics again. Were, were you just miserable doing that, even for that short amount of time? Yeah, I wasn't happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but it also was an exciting time during that time. It was mm -hmm. 1971, and it was, there were all sorts of, uh, on the edge, I could say progressive, experimental, maybe um, type of uh, everything, but in terms of in the world, but in terms of in particular psychological, they had these human growth centers. And uh, I remember Quest in Washington, D.C., you'd go and I could experience a, a, a gestalt therapy group, I mean, an encounter, not an ongoing group. Yeah. You do it like for a weekend type of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then an encounter group and a bioenergetic group and uh, a massage group, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, so that also, you know, helped me make the transition from, uh, from being an economist and saying goodbye to the, to the anxiety of my parents. Wow, pivotal, pivotal time. So you, how, how did how did that work academically speaking? As you as you pivot into being like, did you have to re-enroll in school? You switched your major. You know how how was it to to pivot into this world that you're still in after all these years? 
Yeah, well, I came came up in a paraprofessional route in that uh. um, I I came back to New York uh, in in uh, uh, I don't know about a half a year after I left the, the economics uh, mm-hmm. the commerce department, and I didn't know what I wanted to do then. It wasn't then I was going to go into psychology. I read voraciously though. Uh, you know, Maslow and Rogers and Rollo May and, and all sorts of people. Uh, well, that was a little bit later on. And um, although not that much later on, actually, is um, and uh, and but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So uh, I, I got signed up to get a master's in education. Awesome. Uh, I actually got a fellowship. I probably wouldn't even done that. But while I was doing the master's in education, that clarified that I was much more interested in, like in my student teaching, I, they, the kids would naturally come up to me and uh, ask me, open up to me. And, uh, and I like that much better than teaching social studies. <laughs> mm, well, so it's interesting because presence is such a feature of, uh, of what we, you know, in the existential sort of framework talk about as an anchor point of our work, but you sound like you really intuitively had that and acted on it. I mean, you're, you know, you're describing this taking advantage of opportunities and things that were presented to you. I mean, noticing how much you liked when kids would confide something in you and then helping that feature take you into what you eventually became, the psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of also natural. Um, yeah, and um, uh, and maybe to the people listening to the podcast, I should explain how I look at presence. And presence is one's. Uh, it, it has two uh, su- subsets, two two components to it. Is uh, it is well, I should say, presence is really being there. Uh, Martin Heidegger. Uh, talked about that that sign being there you know it's it's uh it's putting any kind of theory and uh i'm just being with the person and and with their lived experience which is called phenomenological uh methodology um of uh attitude and um and so it has two components though, in terms of how, how can I be there? How can I be as fully there for the person I'm listening to, whether it's client or not? Um, and uh, one is uh, accessibility, um, where I'm able to tune in and you know what the, cl- what the person I'm talking to matters to me. And I'm letting myself experience it and see what comes up, you know, so one component is accessibility because it's almost how can I be present if I don't know what's going on in me, you know? Um, And the other part is expressiveness, um, which basically I'm uh, sharing what's going on in uh, as appropriate, uh, depending upon the context, client, friend, et cetera, um, that, is that I'm drawn to say that seems meaningful in, in whatever we're talking about, in this case, whatever the client's talking about. And so if I'm, if I'm doing those things, that's what presence is. And the belief is if I'm really present with someone, it supports their authenticity. 
because then they free, they don't have to play a role. They can look at being themselves also. And then that leads into them knowing themselves, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which then, or what, how they block being themselves. And as they peel back that um, and work through the wounds and the defenses um, at their choosing, because we also need defenses, um, but a consciousness of that, then it can uh, move into actualizing in the world of what their desires and needs are or, or seeing what keeps them from doing that. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where presence, that's how present works is I'd say a core, if not the core of what is healing and growth producing in existential humanistic psychotherapy. Um, so, uh, and so I'm, I'm not sure how we started this, but um, I just want to go back to one thing we're talking about, back to the therapeutic skills, um, is, uh, you know, so deep listening is that receptive way. It's, it's me being accessible to what's going on in me, what's going on, a sense of what's going on in the client, what's going on between us. Um, but all, and also those is an active part, which is engaged curiosity in my expression of that. You know, so that's because my engaged curiosity lets the client know I'm there in an active way as well as a receptive way. And that engaged curiosity can help them open up more to what they weren't aware of by whatever my statements or questions are. And uh, so that's also a circle, a full circle. And demonstrating that engaged curiosity doesn't only come in the form of a question you may ask, but it's also demonstrated with body language, like a leaning forward, uh, uh, an utterance, like a aha, aha, or would you say that there's yes, a multifaceted way to demonstrate that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I personally feel like this chapter is hugely important and has been very helpful to me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also don't, for, for maybe the folks that aren't therapists, you know, they're probably like, oh my God, when are they going to stop with this technical shit, you know? Um, but I, 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 I want to just put another plug for, for this and I'll also do it on the, on the show notes. Um, it's called the Handbook of Humanistic Psychology, Theory, Research and Practice. It's the second edition and Bob wrote chapter 27. What are some of the other folks that are on this book, if you remember, that have written other chapters? Uh, well, Kirk Schneider. That's right. Uh, the, and Frazier Pearson are the two editors of it. And um, they also uh, have pieces in it. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Durson's there too, no? No, no that, that's the Wiley Handbook of, of Existential Psychology. Ah, right, yeah. They're different. Uh, and this would be, yeah. And uh, this one is United States oriented because existential psychotherapy is the United States version of existential psychotherapies. Um, and uh, Kirk is the contemporary, I would say the contemporary leader of uh, existential humanistic psycho psychotherapy in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so he's in it and uh, I'm, I'm close with both Kirk and Frazier because it goes back to what I was saying about Jim Bugenthal as my uh, psychological dad, because Frazier and I have been, well, I started in 1991. Frazier started somewhere in the 90s, I forget when. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Kirk is also uh, now his his mentor is Rallo May. Uh, he might consider Rallo May his main mentor, but he would also talk about Jim Bugenthal as his mentor. So we're sure. all connected that way. Absolutely. Um, what a legacy. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, uh, I can say something. Uh, you know, I'm going to go back because I, I can say something almost academically, but could be interesting in mm -hmm. terms of, of Jim, how he sees existential. Absolutely, yeah. Psychotherapy. And yeah. also contrasted to another way to do it, which is Irvian. Right. Um, but uh, in Jim's case, he's very much uh, uh, existential humanistic, I'd say intrapsychic, because when one's present, we're in the present, it's interesting the word present, we're in the present moment, and because that's what we have. And then uh, our past, past and future are important, and they're integral to what's in the moment. So rather than I'm on tape, uh, as I'm talking to you, something comes up that's about my past that I want to share, that feels important for me to share. Uh, again, putting it in the role of client and therapist. Um, and, uh, or I uh, am in touch, uh, I could say this intuitively, presence opens up one's intuition. Um, uh, and uh, that I, there's energy in terms of, uh, of something in the future of what I might want to do. So that's another thing. Presence also, it's a very energizing force and also guiding force. But not to the exclusion of the importance of historical no, that's events. What I'm, exactly that's, right. Yeah. That's what I'm yeah. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, when I'm not on tape, I go to the historical event that really is the most important at that exactly moment. Exactly right. And I go to the future and what also is the most important in terms of what I'm pulled that has the most energy for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what Jim would call it would be concern guided searching. That I come uh -huh. in and I have my concern and then in staying present with that concern, I open up to the past and the future. That's right. What's relevant, meaningful. And that's and through that process, that's a key way that change takes place. Um, in those discoveries and those awarenesses that I wasn't completely aware of. It's opening yeah. up to the unconscious or the pre-conscious, semi-conscious. Uh, and uh, um, so he was very much intrapsychic and he would uh, ha have the client focus in their concern on very strongly what happens internally as they're exploring it and reflecting what he's seeing uh, non-verbally as well as verbally that seems significant to him. You know, a person laughs mm -hmm. at something that's important, so he might reflect the laugh, and then it moves the person back to looking at, well, why did I laugh, and how is that relevant to what I've been talking about? So just to, cl to, to clarify, intra-psychic, which was the, 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 the stance that Bugenthal took, that is for the person to understand their internal structure and functioning and process. So he yeah. really put it on the person. Absolutely. Great. And, uh, and of course, none of this is black and white, but that, that's what he would lead with. That's what his emphasis was. And Irv Yalom 
who is the number one, he's just older. I mean, he's like 90. So, you know, Kirk's in, he's, Kirk's like 65. So that's why I say Kirk is a contemporary leader now. Irvi Alam's retired and, but he's the one probably who's the most known in the United States in terms of existential psychotherapists, certainly people of people that are living. And, um, and so his emphasis would be on the existential interpersonal presence in the moment. So what interpersonal he, inter, which means yeah. he's very interested in the relationship between in the present moment between the client and himself. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've given this example before you've heard it, but when I worked with Jim in these week retreats, he had one of the times he worked with me. And one of my concerns was, uh, this was 1997. I started working with him in 1991. And I, uh, my concern was that my dad had passed in uh, at the uh, early 1997, a few months before the retreat. And I shared, you know, that was on my mind. And then what came up with me was I felt Jim was like my psychological father mm. and uh, not like was my psychological dad. And uh, I said, I said that to him. And interestingly enough, he made the one interpersonal comment of the whole time we were working together in, which is probably about 20, 25 minutes. And uh, he said, yeah, Bob, we've been, uh, we've been something like, uh, I know, we've been uh, friends for a long time. You know, he might have said friends and colleagues. In fact, I think he said friends and colleagues for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I moved into... Uh, the shame, like I'm not worthy, you know, how could he say that? And mm. I, mean, I was honored by it, but all the shame came up from ways I didn't, I didn't feel worthy. And so uh, Jim, wow. the rest of the time he, w- we were together, just said, okay, Bob, just something's happening. Just keep on going. And, and then I, the rest of the time I was sharing that theme, uh, what I call an existential theme for me at that time, at least of, of me feeling not worthy. And, um, and it was very powerful and valuable. Now, my imaginings of what Irvi Allen would have done with that was moving the shame into the relationship between him and me. In other right. words, you, you know, saying like, uh, um, how does that impact our relationship? And how would you like it? Or maybe share his feelings of, you know, that makes me feel sad because, you know, I'd, I'd want you to feel that equality between us and whatever else you know yeah and, but all all roads lead to Rome both of them help a person understand who they are in a more powerful way and makes it more conscious it's yeah amazing. yeah it's absolutely fascinating because I mean arguably obviously you know Rollo May Kirk Schneider and other folks that exist in in, in that canon are up there but these are inarguably considered two masters of this approach and it's such an obvious differentiation of how each one of them approaches it and for folks who are interested like maybe you can remember the name of the article I don't remember the name but Aura Krug wrote an article in 2009 I think where she did like a contrast and comparison of Bugenthal and Yalom where she kind of walks us through perhaps why they took certain approaches and how their own lives maybe led them to have the 
type of therapeutic stance that they had, where one was so much about the space between them, Yalom, and Bujental being so much about what's happening inside of you. Yeah, um, yeah, Aura, um, also part of the Bujental group, although she also worked with Yalom. And, um, Did she study with you when you were studying with Jim? Yeah, she still is. How we cool. Yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah. And so that or originally did it as a research uh, for her research for her PhD. Um, and it was a lot just comparing the differences, well, it, comparing the differences between them. Uh, that was what it was about. And then I believe she also made it uh, an article in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology at some point. That's the one and, I'm talking uh, about, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't know if it's identical to a research thesis, or, but whatever, it certainly got across the same points. That article has been so helpful to me, especially coming up. I mean, I, I, I think I would reread it every few months all through grad school. Um, and, and it was such a part of my formation in, in this whole thing. Until I met Bob Edelstein, then everything flipped upside down. Just radical. <laughs> Uh, I, I will uh, pass it on to Orr. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so when did you end up beginning to, because I suspect you didn't just graduate and start a private practice. Tell us a little bit about your sort of uh, development post-graduate school that eventually leads you to private practice and working with Jim. What was that like, those early yeah. years? Again, I'd say a, a paraprofessional route is that um, is, uh, so I graduated from, in 75, I graduated from doing the mass in education, but I did a lot of psychology electives as well as on my own reading, as I said, and, um, and did a lot of wor uh, workshops. And, um, and then I, uh, became a, a volunteer in a hotline um, crisis center. And then I got a job as, which was really um, life-changing. I was a counselor for a residential treatment program, short-term, like six weeks, six to 12, mm. with about uh, up to 12 teenagers, both boys and girls. And, um, and I would do individual uh, family and group counseling. And also milieu, what's called milieu therapy of just, it was a very humanistic orientation and uh, it was great. And uh, I did that for about uh, a year and a half. And then uh, I applied for a program in Esalen, Esalen Institute, which is a, still is a hotbed of humanistic psychology programs. <coughs> Um, a hotbed of a hotbed of hot tubs. I heard in the seventies, at least. I don't know what's happening now, but yeah, what, what's what's in Las Vegas should be kept in Las Vegas. <laughs> All right, I'm not I'm not here to I'm not here to put anybody on the spot. So you can keep those <laughs> you can keep those stories to yourself. <laughs> uh, the hot tubs looks over. It's just an incredibly beautiful place in uh, in Carmel, California. It just overlooks the ocean. It's really incredible. Um, and so I got into a program, and that's how I moved to California, um, called Realms of the Human Unconscious, uh, which was um, put on, it was a month program, and it was put on uh, by Stan Groff, 
who was the uh, one of the top, if not the top, uh, psy uh, psychedelic. Uh, he did research in psychotherapy with psychedelics, LSD. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it was an amazing program. It was like a who's who of existential humanistic trans transpersonal leaders because people would come in like for a day through the month and Stan was there the whole time. Yeah. And, uh, Do you have a relationship with Stan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Let, not now I don't, but uh -huh. back then I did. And That's I great. remember when I, when I, <laughs> it's still with me, when I said goodbye, when we ended, he said, remember, Bob, keep your cosmic perspective. <laughs> that was Stan Groff to you? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's very Groff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was really a, an amazing experience. That's fantastic. So you end up on the West Coast because of Esalen, basically. Right. I came out with my two suitcases. And again, that program in Esalen, but I came out with my two suitcases. Oh, yeah. And and then, um, again, still a paraprofessional route. I ended up, because of my work with teenagers back in uh, Long Island, I got a job uh, uh, developing a youth ranch for teenagers. Oh, uh, actually, uh, for I forget what order now, but for teenage girls, uh, and then out in the desert, <laughs> um, in Palmdale, California, wow. and, and and then uh, and then moved up to San Francisco. I had some friends after that ended, and then I uh, oh did different things in there. Um, and uh, got a job eventually in uh, Modesto for a year and a half, where uh, I was the clinical supervisor director of, the, of an adolescent alcoholism treatment program. I developed it actually in terms of uh, a huge community mental health center and, uh, and, and also did uh, therapy there with the both teenage and teenagers and their families. And then I learned about uh, chemical dependency. They hired me because of my background with teenagers. And that was really um, influential in terms of my career. And then I didn't like Modesto, so I moved to San Francisco and eventually became uh, the clinical supervising director of the Haight-Ashbury Center for Alcohol Problems, which was an information uh, and uh, information referral detox, helping people go, get to detox, and also a counseling program of, again, individual, couple, family. Yeah. Around what year was that at the Haight-Ashbury Center? 79 to 80, 80. Okay. And then I was the last director because it was this Proposition 13 was a property uh, a savings tax uh, bill that passed. Oh. Social services had to be cut. Um, Jesus. And uh, so then ultimately I did another chemical dependency treatment program in Raleigh Hills Outpatient Services and then moved up to uh, Portland um, with my wife and I had a child then. And then I did actually go to California Inst Institute of Integral Studies uh, in East-West Psychology. And after about half my units, I was already doing a lot of wanted in the field and we uh, moved up to Portland, so uh, mm. I stopped at that point. And then uh, uh, was clinical supervisor of another chemical dependency treatment program, and then uh, and then started my private practice, full time private practice, in 1987. 
which I've and I've been in private practice since then. That you are still into this day, yeah. Yeah, doing uh, medium to long-term psychotherapy um, with, uh, you know, with, with most people, like, because the philosophy is more important than who I work with. And uh, mm -hmm. since I like everybody, I liked working with anyone who, who knocked at my door. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. And then, uh, and then started uh, training for a while now, uh, starting in 1995, actually. I wanted to bring what I learned from uh, Jim and uh, my colleagues there back to Portland. And so I started these existential humanistic training case consultation groups and still do them today, you know, some different formats, but still do it today, as you know. And um, and so those are the big things I do in my journey. And then also uh, I write a blog for Psychology Today, which uh, under authentic engagement or radical way of being. Which I would recommend to anyone interested in learning more about this orientation to yeah. definitely visit the blog. Um, I don't want us to gloss over because you kind of alluded to it, but maybe it wasn't clear enough for people that don't know, but you are the founder of Existential Humanistic Northwest. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization of which, full disclosure, we're both on the board now um, uh, with a new president, but yeah, tell us a little bit about the founding of that and yeah. what, what that's about, that organization. Well, well, basically, I was on the board of the Existential Humanistic Institute in San Francisco from 2008 to 2012. Is which, that what became Saybrook eventually, or no? No, no that's totally different. Totally different. Um, and uh, not totally different. You have the same players in both, but it's yeah. separate. Different entity. And, uh, Kirk Schneider presently is the president of the Existential Music Institute. And, uh, and I decided I wanted to do something like that in the Northwest. Actually, I was thinking of Portland, but then it became the Northwest. And so in 2010 is when I, um, when I started the organization. And my aim in that was to have, uh, I had about 18 different, a vision of about 18 different points or goals that could happen. And that was as important to me as we have uh, a process person-centered, which again, my impact from Carl Rogers, uh, orientation of, of how we related, how we made decisions, um, a very collaborative mutual process. And uh, that's, that's developed from 2010. And what has been its uh, zenith, is that the word? Uh, most yeah. uh, kind of stellar kind of uh, event we've had just happened uh, this past September. We, we had the four contemporary leaders of existential psychology and psychotherapy uh, in the world uh, in, in uh, um, Emmy Van Dersen from England, Alfred Fried, Fried uh, Langel from uh, Austria, and uh, Kirk Schneider and Eric Craig from the United States, and That's it right. was a 14-hour conference. And from that, that in terms of participants or registrants from 32 countries and 23 states in the United States, so that's really rich and. Uh, you know, you had an important part in that. And, uh, and um, I, I'd say, 
you and I and the board are still pretty high from it. <laughs> I, I, yes, it, it, that was, well, that was special. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, uh, and, and, and what a, um, I was just listening to a tiny interview from Steve Jobs, who as a 12 year old boy communicated to, um, I forget the guy's first name, his last name is Hewlett of Hewlett Packard. And he called him as a 12 year old and said, hey, do you have blah, 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 spare parts? Cause I'm building a da, 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 da. And he said, well, yes, I do. <coughs> um, and this idea of like, sometimes you just have to ask and ask and people might actually say yes. And we asked these four giant people and they all said yes. And let's not kid ourselves. You were absolutely instrumental and your history in this field had everything to do with that. But they could have said no and they didn't. And that's a testament to just asking and being present and also to your contributions to this whole lineage and, and yeah. how much you're respected that they all did something that they had never done before. I mean, they, yeah. For, yeah. Those, for those who don't right. know, they did a full 50 minute session with a volunteer, each one of the four. And for most okay. of us, this is such a private enterprise, this thing of therapy. And to get to watch all four of them working was just amazing. Yeah, it was. And, you know, they all said uh, they felt it was historic. Yeah. Together in this format. And also, it's rare to have full sessions with four different clients, uh, volunteer clients. And, That's right. Uh, and also, of course, talking about their theoretical approaches. Um, and, uh, and if I can put in a plug, uh, we, we have edited, well, well, it's gonna come out, I'd say within a couple of weeks, edited uh, videos of, the, of all the presenters' uh, presentations, the demonstrations of the four volunteer clients and a panel at the, uh, of the four at the end of the conference. And uh, one can access it if they join the affiliates of, uh, of EHNW. And you can go to ehnwpdx.org and see what it means to become an affiliate and what the benefits are. But that would be one of the benefits. <laughs> so what you're telling me, Bob, is that if somebody goes to ehnwpdx.org and they become an affiliate, they would have access to all of this stuff that we just talked about? Yeah, absolutely. They could see all four of these people doing therapy and lecture and the panel discussion? Absolutely. Okay. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, and there's different, it's uh, both for professional students or really anybody. <laughs> Fantastic. I, that, I, hope, I hope people are listening. I mean, it's invaluable. I experienced it and it is, it is goosebump inducing. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's really special what happened. Um, yeah. Okay, so we've been tooting our own horns for about what, 15 minutes now straight? <laughs> let's talk a little bit about some struggles tell me some stories when about maybe when things got shitty or difficult how how anything you want to say around that realm and how you as an existential humanistic sort of thinker how did you confront this well what we call failure I don't even know if you want to call it that yeah 
Well, I don't look at it as, you know, this may sound kind of corny, but that I think a good play, that's very American failure or success. And that I'd rather look at it as, mm-hmm. I know this is going to sound maybe idealistic, but there's no such thing as failure. It's learning from what you didn't do quite right or what could have been better. Yeah. If you use that as an opportunity for that, because otherwise you just look at failure, it's easy to move into shame and shame isn't a productive emotion. That's right. Um, and uh, but in terms of struggles and challenges, a couple of things I can think about is certainly uh, early on in my career, and I don't know how long it lasted. Well, it still is today. I think there's some benefits to it, but I would have some self doubt, like what am I really doing? You know, because this isn't as concrete as say uh, a behaviorist. You know, where they have specific. Well, I shouldn't be where they have specific the techniques and then goals and all and this is much more personal and subjective the existential humanistic uh philosophy Um, so i could have a vulnerabilities about what am i really doing and really how am i good and you know the, the imposter syndrome and so that could be a struggle at different times in my career another struggle would be um that as i've learned I'm more centered in myself when I, again, first started and however long it lasted, because this doesn't happen very much now. I thought I had to do a lot more than I did. And that could be exhausting and a burnout. So, Mm. you know, I'm much more relaxed now in my sessions. Uh, And then the other thing is, this was a huge turning point is that, uh, and I think this was valuable. I did so many agency settings from uh, like, 20, I think 24 to 38, something like that. And at 38, I decided to leave an agency set. I was really tired of agency settings. It can be very uh, difficult work in the, in the demands and challenge, the demands of, uh, you know, of that is imposed by what's needed and by the administrator <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's exhausting, can be exhausting. And so at 38, I decided I had done a part-time practice, but I decided I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring and do full-time private practice. And if it didn't work out, I gave myself till 40 and who knows if I would have done it, but I said, I'd be out of the profession. I'd look for something else. Wow. And, I, and it, it, it took off pretty quickly, which I'm grateful for. So those are some of the challenges that I've, those are a couple of things that come up when you ask that. I didn't know that. You got quite close to saying, I'm out of here in a way. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I was, like I said, if I got to 40, I would, I yeah. would mind it was like, I was seriously considering it. That's the time limit I'm going to give myself. And I, and I, and I have, I have a feeling you weren't going back to economics. <laughs> it, it was going to be a new frontier yet again, huh? You're right. I, I have no idea that would have been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great. Is there anything else that you would like to... Well, I want to just say one thing um, in sort of preparing to speak with you. Um, your website has two fantastic interviews, one with Jim Bugenthal, and one with Irv Yalom, who by all accounts is 
perhaps because of his therapeutic prowess, but just as much, if not maybe more even, because he's a hell of a writer. In fact, perhaps better than most therapists that have put in, put in their two cents as writers. He, I mean, he's a novelist as well. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, you know, he's a well-read, we have read him, all of us have, and it's just a fantastic interview and it's worth right. a read for anybody that wants to get involved with that for sure. Yeah, thanks, William. Is uh, I can tell you something that I felt was funny in terms yeah. of, about those interviews. Yes, I, both of them at the end, especially this. I asked, "What do, What do you want to be remembered by?" You know, yeah. and uh, Jim said, which didn't surprise me, that I want to be known as um, uh, of I forget the exact words, but. Uh, crashing down the walls of objectivity and raising up the importance of subjectivity. That's so beautiful. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's what he's good for so yeah. much. And then with Irv Yalom, there's so much he could have said. It just cracks me up, you know. He, I, uh, with all the, I mean, he wrote the book, even though, to be truthful, it's a little bit too academic for my taste but it is the book on existential psychotherapy. He wrote the book on group psychotherapy, which I think is incredible. Yeah. And, and then, you know, he's done some great novels. So I asked him, what, do you, what would you like to remember? But he said, well, I'd like to remember that I was a pretty good writer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, 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 did a, I did a double take. Are you yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, that was his passion before I think he even got into therapy. I mean, he was always very much literature minded just from growing up in the East Coast in a rough neighborhood. And I guess he just kind of buried himself in reading and books and yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What an interesting difference, both of them, because I, I, I am very much inspired by Jim Bugenthal, perhaps more than anyone else of people in that caliber. But Yalom is just much easier to read. True. Sure. You know, as much as I sometimes I have to reread things with Bugenthal and think, what, what do you mean? Oh, that's what you meant. Okay, now I got it. Yeah, yeah. With Yalom, it's like, I get it. I get it. I get it. That's really good. Well done. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. part of his popularity. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, not to keep plugging on him, but his last book, A Matter of Death and Life, is wow. I mean, just a, an exploration of, of, of the, uh, well, it might be a plot spoiler, but I guess people know his wife passed away and it's just basically them sharing a chapter each and then him having to finish the book post her death. And uh, sure. what a tale, yeah. Sure. Um, we're, we're running at the end of our, of our time here, which is a little unfortunate because I can keep talking to you for a few more hours, uh, but such is life. Where can people find you, Bob? Where can I? <laughs> You're like, I live in a gray house in the corner. <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> That's great. I mean, that narrows it down to a time zone. That's good. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a website? What would you like to share with folks if they wanted to, if, if, if I don't know, are you taking clients? I mean, obviously you're still in private practice. If, if yeah. you know, people like what you, how you have been here, can they yeah. reach out or? Yeah, I mean, people can. I have a small waiting list at this point. Okay. People can certainly reach out to me and 
uh, be put on my waiting list or maybe there'll be spaces. And then I, I always give them if they want referrals. And yeah. uh, the way you can get to me, I mean, a couple of sources. The two sources I would say is my website is bobedelstein.com. That's right. www.bobedelstein.com. Yeah. And I'll, I'll have that on the show notes too. And then the other thing would be my Psychology Today blog, where I put out a blog about uh, every three months. And it's something on in my, again, it's called the Authentic Engagement Radical Way of Being. And it's mm-hmm. my take on all different concepts that, uh, that, I, that I attempt to make pretty uh, accessible in terms of understanding it. You know? I, could, I could attest so, to that, yeah. So those would be the two ways. So if people go to psychologytoday.com and then kind of punch in Bob Edelstein, your blog will come up. Yeah, and another way is go to my website, again, bobedelstein.com, and on the homepage on the sidebar, it says I'm a contributor to Psychology Today, and if you click that, it will go to the latest blog. So there's two different ways to get there. Wonderful, great, and I'll put those down too in writing when people look up this particular episode. Any last thoughts, any last words? Yeah, finish I, up here? I, I appreciate you having me on uh, your podcast, William. I, I uh, celebrate you for uh, mm. providing this, the podcast, not only for me, but in general. And as Jim said to me, I really appreciate our, uh, uh, be, you being a colleague and a friend. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Bob. That means a lot. I really appreciate you. Thank you for your time, for your wisdom, your knowledge, and for being well, you weren't only my supervisor for a bit, but just a, a, a mentor and perhaps my psychological dad and mm-hmm. continuing that, that, that legacy. So thank you for yeah. that, Bob. It's been a real, a real treat to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you. All right. Take care, Bob. Okay, bye, boy. Bye-bye.